Turn in our Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. <coughs> you know, J.I. Packer once described preaching as an activity of letting texts talk, alerting the Christian to the fact that God is constantly addressing them. And that's the privilege that I have when I get to preach here at Sovereign Grace Church. It is allowing the text to talk and reminding you that God is always addressing us. When we gather around his word, it isn't just a moment of teaching. It isn't just a moment that we we get through. God is addressing you. God is coming after you. And as we listen to his word today, I believe he wants to change our lives. He wants to inform our lives. He wants to bring things to life through the preaching of the word. And so we're going to read together 1 Peter from verse 22 to verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, though through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news. That was preached to you. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word today, we are freshly reminded that you are addressing us. Your holy and authoritative word is addressing our souls. You yourself are re-speaking your word to us. So Lord, would our hearts be softened by this? Would we be Would we have hearts that are ready to cultivate your word in them? Lord, come after us, run after us this morning. In your precious name, amen. In his commentary on 1 Peter, David Helm writes the following story that I think is somewhat poignant for us. He writes the following. The Vietnam War was mercifully drawing to a close during my middle school years. And that meant the young men who had been sent over to fight We're now returning to the States. Each one needed a fresh start on life. For one man, that meant enrolling at Judson College. I never knew the man by name, but I regularly saw him from a distance of 100 yards. Judson College is on the Fox River in Illinois. My dad's office and the athletic apartment was a wedge shot from its banks. I could see the river from the gym. During the frigid winter months, the man stood alone along the river's frozen edge. Tending a covey of ducks. He fed them. He cut through the ice to open up an area of water for them. In short, he met their every need during the cold season. Every day. I asked my dad why the man cared so much about the ducks. I will never forget the story he told. He has just returned from the war in Vietnam, he said. The story is that the ducks saved his life. His unit had been ambushed, many of his friends had been killed, and while he hadn't been shot, he lay down to to look like he had. He hoped they would go away, but they didn't. 
The enemy kept coming. Through the fields they came. They put one more shot into every fallen man to ensure that he was dead. But suddenly, a covey of ducks flew overhead, and the attention of the soldiers was diverted. In their excitement, they began running after the ducks to shoot at them instead. In the end, they stopped checking the field for men and left. That's how the man down by the river escaped. And so now he has a special love for the ducks. Listen, he loves because he lives. He loves because he lives. And the call of our text this morning conveys, I believe, something oh so similar. For we have been born again to a living hope, have we not? In the opening verses of chapter 1, he reminds us that you have been born again to a living hope. You've been made alive with Christ. You are a new creation, a new birth in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiven of your sin, redeemed into the family of God, adopted into his presence, assured that heaven is your home. You've been born again to a living hope. Your life has radically turned around. And so in light of that, he tells us in verse 22 and calls us to love one another earnestly. In light of everything that has happened, for the fruit and effect of the new birth in our lives, as designed by God, is love. In headline, we love because by the grace of God, We live. Three points then this morning. Number one, the basis of our call. Number two, the call itself. And then number three, the hope of the call. What is our hope in actually getting this done in our lives? All taken from the text. But really, I come to this with just one hope. And it's that we really will realize this morning that we love because by the grace of God, we live. He has made us alive in Christ, which has changed everything. And the fruit and characteristic of that is love. Number one, then, the basis of our call. And look with me at the start of verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. See, quite clearly, Peter is looking back here to a moment in their lives, a former moment in their lives, and it is the moment in context of conversion. You remember that moment when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? In that moment when you believed the truth and responded to the truth with faith in his holy and precious name, you were indeed born again. Your life was made new. You, by his abounding grace, were made alive with Christ. You were indeed a new creation, forgiven of your sin, and redeemed and adopted into the family of God, and know for sure that heaven is your home. When you purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, when you responded with faith, your life was radically changed. And two things that happened within that is justification and sanctification. And if we don't understand those two things, if we don't understand what they are or the differences in them, this text won't sparkle like it's meant to do. (laughs) 
So let me just take a step back from the text a moment and explain to you the difference between justification and sanctification. For about 20 years of my life, I had no idea what these terms meant, nor did I know the differences between them. And because of that, I was definitely a legalist. I got these confused all the time. So let me explain how these work, because it's when we explain how these work that this verse begins to come alive in our hearts. First of all, in justification. Justification, so we are clear, is the act of being declared righteous by God. That's what justification is. It is just as if I had not sinned. It is the act of being declared righteous by God. Romans 3, verses 23 and 24, (coughs) say it this way. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but as a gift through the redemption of Jesus Christ, you can be justified. Justification, then, so we are clear, is being declared righteous by God. It is a legal term. It's a judge term. It's like when the gavel of the judge comes down and goes, boom, not guilty, justified. It's happened. It's a moment. It is a declaration over your life. Justification, then, is a position before God, a position that becomes permanent at the time of our conversion. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that moment, boom, forgiven. Justification is immediate, and justification is complete upon conversion. It doesn't happen then in degrees. It happens all at once. In that moment, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are, boom, purified. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. It is why we can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because boom, the gavel of the judge has come down, not guilty. I declare you righteous. You know when a judge's gavel comes down, it doesn't like change a week later because we feel a bit different. No, it's done. It's done. It's a declaration. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are purified. William Plumer sums it up well when he writes the following. He says, justification is an act. It's not a work or a series of acts. It's not progressive. The weakest believer and the strongest saint are alike equally justified. Justification admits no degrees. A man is either wholly justified or wholly condemned in the sight of God. How well said that is. Listen, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified. It's not a process, it's a position. It's not a if, it's a declaration over your lives. And if we rode you all up together, no one of you would be more justified than the other. You are all, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are all purified, you're all cleansed, you're all forgiven. That's what it means to be justified. That happens the very moment when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. At that very moment of conversion, boom, forgiven. Is it a process? No. You're just forgiven. Do I have to do anything? No. Enjoy it. You're forgiven. It's a declaration on your life. When God now looks at you, he looks at you clothed in the perfect righteousness of his son. The sinless life that he lived that you never did. It's like a cloak that covers your entire body. 
And when God looks at you, he says, you know what? I washed you as white as snow through the blood of my son. I declared you righteous. You are now forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Blessed is the man who lawless deeds he counts not against him. That's you. That's justification. And when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are completely and utterly justified. But who amongst us in that moment is therefore like living that out immediately? It's one of the shocks of Christianity, isn't it? You go on Alpha, you become a Christian, you're like, oh my gosh, I still sin. Mm-hmm. So what, what about that? That's sanctification. We're justified by the Lord. That's an act. But then we go through sanctification. And sanctification is different. Sanctification, listen, is this. It is the process of us actually becoming like Christ. So having been declared forgiven, having been declared purified, now we all engage in a process that begins at conversion, but continues for the rest of our life until Jesus returns. The process of actually becoming like Christ. C.J. Mahaney, in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, says it this way. He says, when God declares a sinner righteous, he immediately begins the process of making that sinner more like his son. Through the work of his spirit, through the power of his word, and involvement in the local church, God peels away our desires for sin, renews our minds, and changes our lives. So he does. And that process, that ongoing work, is what we call sanctification. The process of us actually becoming more like Christ. Now, so that we are clear, do we have a part to play in this? Do we have a part to play in sanctification, of actually becoming more like Christ? Or do we just let go and let God? You know, we're just like amoebas, it's just happening. No. The Bible is clear that we have a part to play. In Philippians 2 verse 12, (coughs) we read... (coughs) It's not COVID. It's a cough though. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, well, I I thought I was saved. Mm -hmm, You are. So work it out. You have to understand what that means. Does this mean then that we have to work for our salvation? I have to do something so I can be saved. No! That's what I just said. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You've been justified by his grace. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is finished for you. You have been purified, you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven. Past, present, and future, boom. The gavel of the judge has come down. It is done. But... You have now been called by God to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And part of that manner worthy of the calling received is you need to pursue holiness in your life. You need to put off the old self. You need to be renewed in your mind. And you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In light of his majesty and glory, you need to, as John Piper says, you need to act the miracle. The miracle of justification. Begin to work it out in your life. Put off the old self. And be renewed in your mind. And put on the new self. See, the Bible never tells us to just let go and let God. 
It's such a common phrase. Just it never says it in the Bible. Likewise, it never says we should just chill out and relax because I've been saved. No. It says you've been saved by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And therefore, you should work out your salvation now. You should live the miracle. You should act it out in your life. Does it save you? No. You're already saved by his grace. But you do need to act the miracle. That's what sanctification is. So do we have a part to play in that? Oh, definitely. Our obedience is a very important part to play in that. And yet, here's the comfort in it all. It's the reality that even in this, even in this process of sanctification, we are not alone. (laughs) And what a happy discovery this is. For having been instructed in Philippians 2 to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, in Philippians 2.13, we then read, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And my friends, what a happy and comforting discovery this is, do you not think? It's not like you are justified by his grace and then he says, okay, over to you guys. Just try and work it out. He says, no, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, The point of conversion, I'm going to save you by my grace. I'm going to justify you and purify you. And then I'm going to want you to act the miracle. But that's going to be really hard for you. So I'm going to come into your life. And I'm going to change you from one degree of glory to another. I'm going to work with you. In fact, I'm going to work in your very being. I'm going to both to will and to work for my good pleasure in your life. Do we have a part to play? Yes. Does God have a part to play? Oh, it's a greater part. He is working with you to change you. And it's a process. And it will happen until the day he returns. Until the day you die. The great John Owen says, The duties that God requires of us are simply not in proportion to the strength that we possess in ourselves. Do you ever feel that? That the things that we're called to in the Bible, you're like, I am going to hope, I am going to hope. Exactly. In and of yourself, you've not got to hope. That's why he gave you himself. Listen, the power of the risen Christ lives in your heart. Whoa. Well, that's a game changer. Are you saying the power of the risen Christ can't change anything in you? I don't think so. The power of the risen Christ lives in you in the personal work of the Holy Spirit. So justification, a declaration, a one-time act, sanctification, it's a process of becoming what you've been declared to be. You're saved through justification. You're becoming like Christ through sanctification. You got it? Now, back to the verse. So much bound into this. Because in verse 22, everything I've just said is bound up. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Okay, here's what he's saying. Having put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are wonderfully justified by his grace. You have been wonderfully washed, cleaned. You are purified. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. You've been declared righteous by God. Oh, and you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who is actually going to help you to pursue holiness in your lives. He's going to aid you and he is going to change you from one degree of glory to another. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. All of that is contained in those verses. <laughs> what a happy discovery. You have been gloriously purified by God and even the process now of holiness, he is working in and through you for his glory, changing you. 
And in light of all that then, he tells us, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. (laughs) What a moment. He saved you so that you can love your brothers and sisters. It's part of the purpose. That's why the word is for. I've saved you by your grace for a sincere brotherly love. It's another moment in Scripture where you realize there's no such thing as lone, ranger for, lone rangers for Jesus. There's no such thing as sitting in my house by myself doing online church. That doesn't make sense at all. Because part of what he saved me for is to have a love for people. A love for my brothers and my sisters. A love for others that have been saved by his grace. And that brings us on then to the call itself. Point two. This is the call. That we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's not complicated. But it is truly profound. And I submit to you, as Peter pens these words, we have to put ourselves in his sandals for a moment. You see, this is not just come out of Peter's head. This is not just an idea that he's come up with and then pens us for it. This isn't even a moment, I think, where he's getting like divine special revelation from God and then starts penning it. No, this is something that he's actually heard from Jesus himself. Peter was one of the twelve. Peter walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He spent numerous times with Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter was one of the guys with his shoes and socks off getting his feet washed by Jesus. He was there. So he would have been there on the night when Jesus was betrayed when Jesus said this. Having washed the disciples' feet, including Judas, in John 13, verses 34 to 35, This is what Jesus says to them. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, to Jesus, Jesus' love wasn't like some optional extra. It was the very core and characteristic of what Christianity is. Don Carson, in responding to this new commandment, in John, he says the following. He says, this new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and yet profound enough for the most mature believer to be embarrassed by how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. For this commandment is presented as the marching order for the newly gathered messianic community, brought into existence for the long-purposed and promised redemption of God himself. And so it is. Having been born again to a living hope, and been saved by his grace and brought into the messianic community of the church. The great mark of the Christian life, the great characteristic of the Christian life is love. Love for one another. Profound, affectionate love for one another. All in front of a watching world because as they look on in the world, it is through this love for one another that they will see that you are his disciples. It's through your love for one another that they will see there's something different about you. There's something different in your community. 
Peter has heard that from Jesus himself. And so as he exhorts us to that end, right here in verse 22, he wants us to understand that we are to love one another earnestly. That word is important. Earnestly. It is a word that conveys both passion and sacrifice, and a word that conveys both heartfelt affection and effort. It's not a word that just says, okay, love one another. Yeah, we'll do, got it, got it, yeah, I quite like them. No, no, love one another earnestly. Sacrificially, with effort, with great affection, earnestly. And no one displayed that better than Jesus Christ himself, did they? In 1 John three sixteen, we read, For this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus Christ so loved that he gave his life away for us. And the point, well, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers as well. Jesus tells us, John tells us, Peter tells us. The great characteristic of the Christian life is love for one another, love for the brethren, love for the brothers and sisters around us. It's the great characteristic of what it all means. Peter was so eager then for these Christians to understand this. So eager that they would understand you must love one another earnestly. In light that you've been born again, you must love one another earnestly. He wanted them to realize this. And my friends, I want to encourage you. I think if Peter was to attend this church today, I believe he would be very encouraged with you. I thank God for the way you do love one another. And I do believe you love one another really well. If Peter was to come, I think he would realize this is a characteristic. I had my brother and sister-in-law with us for the last three weeks. And one of the things they mentioned just in passing, just by way, hey, what did you think of the church? It's like, you know what? They really love one another. Well, praise God for that. It is a characteristic in your life. It's not uncommon on a Sunday to see people praying together, to see just time being taken out to care for one another. It's not uncommon to see people being encouraged and affected. When people are doing it tough in this church, as long as they have alerted others to the fact they are doing it tough, people always rally around them. You care for one another so wonderfully well. I've been on the receiving end of that many times. Encouragements and prayers and help and service. There are so many stories dotted around this room of people genuinely being loved by others. You are to be encouraged and commended for this characteristic in your life as a local church. And yet, we would be remiss not to at least take the moment to evaluate our own lives in light of this call, wouldn't we? We'd be remiss not to at least take a moment to evaluate ourselves. Not to evaluate ourselves as a church, because if we do that, we'll be so busy getting the speck out of everybody else's eyes that we'll be smacking them with our own logs, you know? We need to evaluate our own life. How am I doing in this? Here's here's the question then that we might want to consider. How am I doing with loving my gospel community earnestly? 
because I'm called to. Those people that I see like twice a week, (laughs) in midweek and then on a Sunday all the time, how am I going with loving them earnestly? Considering them to be family to me, giving my life to them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to carry their burdens, to be bothered about them. And then what about the wider church? How am I going with loving the wider church earnestly? What about people in the wider church that are nothing like me? How am I going at loving them? You see, when we see the high and holy calling that God has put on our hearts and our lives, it's then that our knees start to go a little bit shaky, do they not? Because the more you press in, the more you realize, oh my, I'm called to love people like Jesus loves people. And I'm not exactly there yet. I'm on a pilgrimage, you know. I'm still trying to move forward in this. And this is tricky. Why is it tricky? Well, hands up if you're selfish. You know, (laughs) selfishness is a challenge, is it not? Thank you for the confession of a dear sister there. We do know, and I'm confessing back to you, that yes. I mean, when I was single, I thought that maybe I was selfish. I got married, I realized I'm very selfish. And then I had five kids, and I realized I am extremely selfish. You know, there are things that pressurize you at different times. And then you gain a church as big as this. You realize, can we not try and be selfish? It's hard. So how do I live selflessly? Well, my disposition can be to be selfish, to think about my needs. Well, Peter knows that we're going to be starting to think like that. And then he, therefore he gives us verses 23 to 25, which is my third and final point, the hope of our call. What is the hope that we have of seeing this come about in our lives? What is the hope that any of us have of actually loving one another earnestly? Now, this is what he says, verses 23. This is your hope. Your hope is that since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. When it comes into our hope for change, and when it comes to our hope for growth, Peter again wants us to look back to the moment where you were born again. He's reminding us again, since, since you were born again, right? You were born again. You put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, correct? Excellent. Well, you were saved in that moment. You were justified in that moment. You were converted in that moment. He took out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He changed your life. He forgave you. He redeemed you. He purified you. Oh, and the Holy Spirit came to live in your heart in that moment to empower you for change. And that change, well, it comes with many promises. For God, in His grace, promises to never leave you nor forsake you. He promises to change us from one degree of glory to another. And he promises that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. And so here's his point. Listen, because God has said it, it will surely happen. How do we know? Because the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What he has promised will get done in your life. Because this word is living and abiding. This word is God's word. And if he has given you his word and given you his promises, he will carry them on to completion. You see, there is great hope for change because God says, I will change you. 
I will help you. I will never leave you. I will change you from one degree of glory to another. I'm sure of this, that having started a good work in you, I will carry it on to completion. How is it that we get so much hope then that I might be able to change and love people like Jesus loves people? It's the reality that Matthew 28 tells us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. It's the reality that 2 Corinthians 8 tells us that he will change us from one degree of glory to another. And it's the reality that Philippians 1 tells us that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. And it's the reality that if it's written in this word, it will happen. Because he's faithful. He's faithful to his promises. And he promises what I've started in you. I will carry on to completion. Is that not good news? It's astounding. So how do we apply this? How are we meant to, what are we meant to do with it? You know, in some messages you get left scratching your head a little bit. And you're really waiting for the pastor at the end to tell you, like, what am I going to do with this? Whereas this one I think is Captain Obvious, is it not? How are we meant to apply this? We're meant to apply it by loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. You have been given a pure heart by God. He has purified you himself. When he declared on the cross, it is finished. Salvation was secured for you. And upon conversion, then that salvation was applied to your life, forgiven, purified, cleansed, gift of the Holy Spirit, helping you to act the miracle. We're called then to love one another earnestly. And to give you a clue of where we're going in this series, in the rest of this letter, Peter is going to be providing us with all kinds of specifics as to what this love actually looks like in the context of the local church. How we're to love one another in a way that people will know that you're my disciples. You have to remember, they're being persecuted by the world. He doesn't say, okay, let's all leave. His point is, listen, your love for one another then will be critical. And whatever the culture is, our love for one another will be critical. As we can continue to go through this letter, then we will hear many specifics as to what this love for one another will look like. And yet, in the grace of God and through the gift of the Spirit, it's not like we have to wait to complete the letter to apply anything, is it? I think instantly we already know things, expressions of love that we can give to one another. So here's, here's the thing I want to encourage you in. Here's the question I want you to consider over this week and seek to apply this week. What's one or two things that you could do even this week to show your love for others in the church? What's one or two things that you can do individually this week to show your love for others in the church. Let's start with your gospel community. What's one or two things that you could do to your gospel community or individuals in your gospel community that expresses your love for them? You know, one of the helpful guidelines can be to think in the, in the categories of service and surprise. What's something you can do to serve somebody this week? What's something you can do to surprise somebody this week? Just to express your love for them and your care for them. What's one or two things then you could do even this week as you consider your gospel community? And then think about the wider church. What's one or two things you could do even this week to express your love to the wider church? I think as you wait on that, 
and pray about that. The Lord will give things to you. The Holy Spirit will be at work. He's alive in your heart. He will bring things to life for you and he'll put things on your heart. And then go do it. Might be a text. Might be making a meal. I don't know. The list is endless. Be creative. The Holy Spirit will guide you. But listen, what I do want you to know is loving one another earnestly is oh so important. And if you're saying, I don't have time to do that, then what you're actually saying is you don't have time for Christianity. Because it's the very root of who we are. We love because by the grace of God, we live. You know that opening illustration at the start of that Vietnam veteran? He, he loved ducks because he lived. He was aware that these had played such a part in changing his life. He was cracking out the ice and feeding them because he's so grateful to them. Well, we get to love something far greater than ducks. Because we live, because we've been made alive in Christ, because we've been born again, we get to love his brethren, his sons and daughters. So may that be our story. We love because we live.